I fear sometimes that we have people who are only listening to Piper and Keller and others rather than imitating what Keller and Piper have modeled for themselves. Those guys are primary source readers. You can go online and find Keller talking about taking an entire year of reading a little bit of Calvin's Institutes every day. Piper's always going back and dipping into Edwards and Owen. I think if we do the same, we'll be more authentic and more rich and have a better understanding than if we just follow the secondary guys. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Justin Taylor. Justin is the Executive Vice President of Book Publishing and Book Publisher at Crossway. He's also edited numerous volumes, including the Theologians on the Christian Life series with Stephen Nichols. Today, Justin and I discuss why church history matters for all Christians. He shares how J.I. Packer helped to introduce him to the riches of the past, why it's worth it to read original sources as much as possible, even when it takes more work, and how to avoid idolizing our historical heroes without minimizing their valuable insights into the Christian life. Let's get started. Justin, thank you for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks. So if you could spend 10 minutes with any one person from church history, like a prominent figure from church history who's had a lasting influence, who would it be and what question would you want to ask that person? I think I always have the same answer to this question as I've thought about it through the years because, you know, it's kind of a interesting sort of parlor game if you're a <laughs> theological nerd to, to ask people that question or to think about that question. And I, I think that I would probably choose John Newton, hmm. the slave ship uh, master turned pastor in Oni and uh, England. Uh, the reason that I would is because uh, I'm not an expert in all aspects of church history. I don't know all of the lives of every man and woman who's ever made any impact. But from all of my reading, he strikes me as the most spiritually healthy mm. sort of person. Um, and such a contrast to his former way of life, which and we can kind of think, oh, yeah, he was bad or he did this job he shouldn't have. But I mean, he he really meant it when he said that he was a wretched man and that mm. he was a vile blasphemer. But the Lord did such an amazing work in his heart and his soul. And, of course, we can't uh, go download audio and hear what he sounded like, mm. the tone of his voice, but we do have his letters. And to read the sort of ways in which he talked to people and he understood his own heart and could draw things out from other people. So... He wouldn't be at the top of my list uh, for asking the most profound theological questions. Mm. You know, you might choose a, a Calvin or an Augustine for that. Or uh, no one that I know of says that he was one of the great preachers of his, even of his time. Um, you know, so he's not a, a Charles Spurgeon sort. But in terms of somebody who could sit down with me and um, peer into my own soul mm. and um, apply my fears and sin and insecurities to the word in light of the gospel. Mm. I just don't know of anybody better than Newton. So I don't know if there's 
one particular burning question that I would have for him, but I think I just want to sit down with him, mm. get to know him, uh, have him get to know me a little bit, and just hang out for a while. Yeah. Uh, some of these guys are, you know, the theologians of the Christian Life series that we did. They're brilliant guys, but they might not be the best uh, conversation <laughs> partners. Yeah. <laughs> or John Piper saying one time, as much as he loves C.S. Lewis, they probably wouldn't have gotten along all that well mm. or, or had that great of a dinner conversation. But I think Newton would have been one of those guys where it would have been an evening well spent. Mm. Yeah, when it comes to church history, and you think about your own life and your own you know, growth as a Christian, is there a moment that you can remember when history came alive to you and you, you first caught a glimpse of the fact that uh, this is important, this is significant, and it actually matters to me as a Christian? That's a great question, Matt, and I don't know that I have one sort of aha moment. I, I'm not the sort of guy that uh, grew up reading a ton of history. I, I read a lot, um, but even as I got into my uh, first years in academic study at, at seminary, I kind of gravitated more towards um, biblical studies, New Testament studies in particular, systematic theology, and church history was kind of hovering in the background, but it wasn't a driving thing for me. I wasn't one of these guys who spends all of his spare time reading not just church history, but just general history. Mm. Um, I don't know why that is, but uh, there was a certain point, I think, in taking some courses on Edwards and on evangelicalism that I saw that this is sort of like reading your own family history. And so, theoretically, somebody could sit down and read a history of somebody else's family. You know, you, you may not be a Smith, but you could sit down and read everything there is to know about the Smith family, but you know, it's just sort of marginally interesting, mm. unless there's some sort of payoff. But when you read about the Puritans, the Reformation, or Evangelicalism, you're reading, at some level, family history. And um, I began to see new connections and new insights and... Um, corrected certain simplistic narratives that I had. And as I kept reading, I wanted to keep reading more and get a little bit deeper. I think maybe in a tangential way, hanging out with somebody like J.I. Packer, um, this is not through any brilliance of my own, but I got assigned to be his host once at like a three-day conference where I just had to drive him from place to place mm. and make sure he got from his hotel to the conference center. And he's such an interesting person. Uh, and he's one of the people in our theologians in the Christian life. Uh, I think the only living author who's the subject of, of one of the volumes. But he's just such an embodiment of church history. He, he knows the tradition himself. But I think of anyone that I know of, he's as close to just if you pulled him out of the 1940s and 1950s, you'd pretty much have the same person today. Mm. Whereas some people could be in their 80s and 90s, and they've just changed with the times. They've adapted you know, everything from the style of speech, the style of clothing, to everything. Mm -hmm. He's as much like going back into the past as, as there is. Because he doesn't have email, right? Maybe not even a phone? He's the, the most advanced technology... Uh, he's ever had, I think, is the fax machine, which broke a year or two ago, and he just never ended up fixing oh. it. So, yeah, no cell phone, uh, no 
personal computer. Um, yeah, typewriter is about the, the highest form of technology uh-huh. besides the fax machine that he uses. But you sit down with him and you read in history books about John Stott versus Lloyd-Jones. And uh, Packer is still alive, and you can say, so what were you doing that night when they had the split? How did you find out about it? Mm. Uh, you can ask him, what was Lloyd-Jones like? I know what he's like as a preacher. What was he like one-on-one in terms of counseling you if you talked to him about your sin or a struggle or a fear? Um, you know, did you get along well with Stott? Uh, what did they think of you? Those sort of things. And the guy has an incredible memory. And uh, so just that, I, I think for for me personally, he was a sort of bridge between mm. the present and the past because he, he lived in both worlds where it's really easy just to, to read a lot of church history and to think if something happened 50 years ago, that's, that's ancient history, just like if it happened 500 years ago mm. or 1,000 years ago. I think maybe another... Um, turning point for me at some point along the way, and again, it wasn't some sort of Damascus Road experience, but reading Augustine, and uh, apart from the Bible, he's he goes back about as far as most of us do in terms of our reading, and you know, he's a church, late church father, but anyone who has read him, who has any sort of spiritual heartbeat, realizes this is a guy who struggled like I struggle. He sees things that I see. He's articulating things that I'd never be able to articulate. Um, it's very easy, at least for me, maybe maybe others aren't like this, but I can think of people from the past as, as almost like uh, a movie star that you know that they're real people in real life, but all you've experienced in terms of seeing them and hearing them is through this medium and they don't seem like real, normal people. It almost mm. seems like they live off on some other planet. And church history figures have been kind of like that for me. But you get a an Augustine, and you realize this is a guy who is a real person. Uh, flesh and blood, sin and grace all mingled in one person. And you start to see new insights about yourself and about the gospel mm. and about the nature of God through reading him. So... Again, he goes back centuries upon centuries. He's he's different from a J.I. Packer. That was just, you know, Packer's still alive, and he's experiencing these things just 50 years ago. Um, Augustine, we go back uh, thousands of years, and um, and you realize, yeah, he's he's just another sinner saved by grace, a brilliant one uh, who changed the world. But uh, that gave me a lot of interest, I think, in church history and, and just wanting to know some of these folks better. Yeah, that's interesting that that reality that it's I've heard that before from from those who are passionate about history whether church or or not. Just the the realization that these figures are real people and they were very similar to us in a lot of ways. And one of the things I know as I think about my own life uh with Martin Luther for example, uh, the uh it was only after reading his own works, his actual own words that I started to get that sense. Um, speak to that, the, the value of actually reading uh, these historical figures in their own words rather than merely settling for biography or some kind of uh, overview uh, volume on, of sorts. Yeah, I assume that most people who are listening to this will be familiar with C.S. Lewis's introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation. You can Google it online. I think Phil Johnson's website has a 
a version that's uh, really readily accessible. But that is worth reading and rereading again and again because he points out there that in his uh, work as a literary critic and as a um, a Don a professor, uh, he found it easier to teach Plato from Plato's actual words than it was for students to grasp the secondary literature of people writing about Plato. They get obscure and uh, complicated in a way that the original master didn't. And there are some reasons for that. Maybe sometimes it's legitimate. Um, but it is a discovery to go back and really read the original people for yourself. And you quickly realize you may not get everything. There may be all sorts of nuances you're missing on your first reading, but there's a reason that they've endured mm. decade after decade, after century after century, sometime millennium. Um, they're, they're brilliant people, and they were able to write in such a way that uh, expressed itself with clarity and with grace and with lasting truth and power. Um, so I think that's another thing that perhaps uh, tends towards this movie star, not real people sort of thing is you're not actually hearing from the person, but you're just reading about the person. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe I should keep doing the movie star comparison, but you know, if, if you only read about somebody in the gossip magazine, I mean, that's a huge difference from actually sitting down and watching them be interviewed and being for them to be able to tell you in their own words what they think and how they feel. Mm. You know, sometimes the secondary literature might match up and sometimes it doesn't. Or sometimes uh, somebody might get the kind of formal principles right, but they don't really get the tone and the heart of it right. Mm. Um, think about somebody like C.S. Lewis. Try to describe C.S. Lewis to a friend or to a, a younger colleague or a, a teenager you could do a great job of kind of, you know, here, here are three or four things that made him a powerful apologist or an insightful Christian. But no matter how great you are at that, it can't compare to having them read Lewis for themselves. Uh, there's just a unique power and authenticity that comes through through Lewis's own voice. So, yeah, we want people as much as possible to return to the sources. You don't know if the, the secondary person is getting it right, if they're complete, if uh, even the sentence they're citing is accurate, if they're leaving out uh, other sentences that might qualify it. So mm. that would be a wonderful thing, I think, if the church just committed to, let's go back and actually read these guys for themselves and not just read about some of these people. Mm. I'll, I'll just say one other thing about, I think Tim Keller and John Piper, they I don't think too many people would dispute that they are uh, in the upper echelon of influencers today, especially in the Reformed evangelical world. I fear sometimes that we have people who are only listening to Piper and Keller and others rather than modeling, imitating what Keller and Piper have modeled for themselves. Those guys are primary source readers. Um, You can go online and find... Uh, Keller talking about just a few years ago taking an entire year of reading a little bit of Calvin's Institutes every day. That's just how he spends his spare time. Uh, Piper's always going back and dipping into Edwards and Owen. So I think it's great to quote Piper. I quote Piper a lot. It's great to quote Keller um, as well. But those guys, 
um, are going back to the sources. And I think if we do the same, we'll be more authentic and more rich and have a better understanding than if we just follow the secondary guys. Hmm. Yeah, related to that, and even to something you said earlier about how there was a time when you maybe had a simplistic understanding of church history. And I think one of the critiques of reform circles, the circles that we often run in, uh, is that our understanding of church history is actually pretty shallow. That we we look at Paul, we look at Augustine, maybe another couple early church fathers, and then essentially jump over thousands of years of church history and reflection on on God, and go right to Luther and the reformers, and then maybe jump again a little bit to the Puritans and Spurgeon, and then we get to contemporary guys like a a, a Piper or a Keller. Uh, or even a packer. Do you think there's any truth to that criticism that the reformed evangelical crowds in which we, we run kind of have their heroes and they stick with them and don't really have a broader grasp of uh, church history beyond those, those figures? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. Um, and I don't know that it's specifically a reformed-ish problem. Um, it's probably true, you know, if we were two Wesleyan guys sitting here, you know, they might have their own little narrative of, uh, yeah, you go from Jesus to Paul, maybe throw in Augustine, and then something, something, Wesley. Hmm. Um, you know, where ours might be Jesus, Paul, Augustine, uh, Edwards, Billy Graham. And hmm. then, you know, that's my timeline for church history. So I do think there's validity in that. I think it's changing. Uh, certainly to some degree. I'm always leery of just um, being too sweeping. Uh, it's hard for me, you know, if somebody were to say, well, 90% of us do that, well, probably. Uh, but I, I don't know any way to quantify that. I do think within uh, certain academic circles, uh, that trajectory is changing and there's a, a rediscovery of the fathers um, I think there's a gradual rediscovery of medieval theologians. Um, certainly Richard Muller and others have helped us uh, rediscover the scholastics. I, it's, I see more talk about Aquinas these days than I have in a long time. I do think it takes a long time for um, things to filter down to the pews, and sometimes I guess it never happens. Um, and I think that's one of the perplexing things about how to make those connections between what guys are getting excited about in seminary and what they're talking about at conferences versus what's actually happening on the ground in the church. But yeah, I think you're you're right. Uh, we gravitate towards what we know or what we think we know and what sort of fits into nice, neat categories. And you get some of uh, the church fathers and... Uh, they're saying weird things. Mm. <laughs> they're saying things we don't agree with. Uh, we don't understand how they got from A to B. Um, you know, sometimes it might not even be so much that I disagree, but I don't even understand how, as a rational person, you could even see that. When I look at the text and I don't see that, and it seems fanciful, it seems strange, it seems like you're clearly taking some unbiblical tradition there and thinking it's obviously true. So that's one of the challenges with church history is that there's some parallels to visiting another country. And I'm not the first, obviously, to um, make that comparison. But 
when you visit another country, you have there's a different language. You might not know the language. And as much many courses as you can take, uh, maybe you memorize all the vocabulary words, you still don't know all the cultural cues and the sort of things that are just normal there that you think are totally normal coming from your culture. So there's um, we have to remember that, I think, when visiting other countries, not to bring our own uh, values and assumptions to it. It's not to say that we, we don't have those or we need to put aside what we believe to be true. Um, but we need to try to understand why does somebody else think that way? Mm. And I think that's hard work. It's it's not easy work. It's not always something that can be captured in a quick, easy uh, chart or graph. And mm. uh, evangelicals can tend to be impatient people. Like, mm. give me the payoff. Um, church history doesn't always work that way. Mm. Yeah, and then speak to the way that we often view some of the, the theological, the historical figures that we do know and we do appreciate, how do we guard against idolizing our theological heroes rather than simply appreciating them for what God did through them? I think there's probably a couple of different ways we can do that. One, just to remember our doctrine, you know, that we, we have a doctrine of man and we have a doctrine of Christ and we have a doctrine of God and a doctrine of sin that applies to all people at all times. So there are no people in church history who just walked on water <laughs> other than one. Mm. Um, they were all flesh and blood people who had blind spots and um, failures, sometimes very serious failures. And so we have to just kind of remember our theology and not think, well, this this one guy was the great exception to that rule. Yeah, maybe he sinned here and there, but by and large, he was just, you know, every time he was up to the to the bat in terms of a moral thing, he was just hitting grand slam after grand slam. It just, it didn't happen. Um, secondly, just in terms of historiography, we have to remember that even though we can go back and read the primary sources, we don't have unfiltered access to anybody's life. Um you take somebody like John Owen, whom uh, I've studied a fair bit and has meant a lot in my life. At the end of his life, all of his personal journals and letters were destroyed. So we have a slim volume of his letters. We have none of his personal journals. Lost 10 children who, who died in infancy. One survived to adulthood and she died before uh, he did. Uh, so just a lot of tragedy we don't know how he processed that. Um, he probably processed it in very holy, mature ways, and he also probably had unrighteous anger mixed in there. Um, but I can't cite any chapter and verse from his corpus because we don't have it. So no matter what figure we have, we have so much from Luther. I mean, he's he's maybe the closest exception to the rule because he was sitting around you know, at the dinner table with students and they're writing down what he's saying. But we still have access to when the students left and the door shut and he's talking to Katie at night. Uh, we, we don't know what kind of things came out of his mouth. And so I have to remember we have limited access. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, those are, are two things. We, we keep our theology and we remember our limited position in terms of what we have. And then I think we need to not just have one or two sort of pet projects from our, our heroes. So 
let's just say that you like Martin Luther and you've been affected by his introduction to Galatians, which you know has some brilliant gospel truth in that. Well, if that's the only thing you ever read from Luther, you could think this guy, again, hit the gospel grand slam every time he was up. Um, if you don't ever get around to reading what he was saying about the Jews and some of the ways in which he acted, then you're not getting a complete picture. So that's an example where we do have uh, a lot of incriminating evidence, um, and it's it's vile stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's perplexing how somebody could see so much light and yet remain in darkness, mm-hmm. which creates a humility in us of what what sort of things are there in my life that uh, are blind spots that mm-hmm. I'm not aware of. You know, when you take the greatest theologian. Uh, the English world perhaps has produced and Jonathan Edwards and I think Edwards didn't see what we see today with regard to slavery. Like how could he have missed something like he, that? He had slaves for I think most of his adult life. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, yeah, at least a couple of them. And again, we don't know everything that he thought. We kind of have to rely on some fragmentary evidence, but uh, there are things that are incompatible, I think, with the full biblical witness and uh, Edwards was not clear on them at the very best. Um, you know, if if that's true with one of the great Christians in church history, how much more so is it true with uh, a messed up sinner mm. like Justin Taylor? I mean, do you think there's a... Uh, Edwards is a good example where, you know, we have a, there's a lot of conversations happening in our culture right now about the t- topics of race and racism and the legacy of racism in the U.S. How do we think about some of these theological heroes, or maybe a better word is just influences that God has raised up. What's the line between uh, honoring the, the things that God did through them and even the, the important uh, witness that they have been to the gospel and various points of important Christian doctrine? Is there a certain point, though, when other things in their life, other failures or sins or blind spots render them sort of off-limits to us or out of bounds and therefore no longer uh, particularly helpful for us? I think it depends on what you mean by helpful um, because there are going to be certain contexts perhaps where someone has said enough things in, in, in from a certain perspective and said them in a certain way that they cease to be helpful for certain points of communication. Hmm. Um, so... You know, a slave-owning theologian, it might not be wise or helpful to be bringing their name into certain conversations. They could still say certain things and have taught certain things that could be helpful for me personally in terms of formulating a doctrine. So, you know, I'm thinking of a certain theologian who had some very insightful things to say about God's moral will versus his decretive will and made some distinctions and made some definitions that we can still cite today, and yet was also a defender of slavery. Um, And not just biblical Old Testament slavery, but the application of chattel slavery in the American context involving kidnapping and breaking up of families. Um, You know, so can he be helpful to me? He can be helpful to me theologically. There is a certain point where it may not be wise or helpful apologetically or in terms of evangelism to be bringing in their name. So it's a, it's a judgment call, I think. 
I don't think we can sit down to our computers and come up with kind of a perfect list of criteria of when somebody says this or if they believe this. Um, I think that there are certain people who would probably want to move in that direction. I'm sure that there are people out there who are orthodox, Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians who would say we should not read Luther or recommend Luther because of his anti-Semitic expressions. Um, I'm not prepared to go there. I think there is probably some line at which that could be crossed, and you just Mm -hmm. say, like, I'm not going to even ever reference that guy. I don't want to read that guy. But with Luther, it's a contradiction, right? It's not he wasn't all bad. He had moments of just absolute brilliance and and insight. And so I think we need to read discerningly and carefully, try to understand why he believed what he believed. So many people are uh, on this hair trigger to condemn, which I think we need to get to condemnation. But I would like us to understand first, because condemnation's easy. I mean, I've got a two-year-old at home, and I could get her to condemn Martin Luther <laughs> if I wanted to. Uh, to understand why he believed what he believed, uh, that's not to say, let's let's try to be empathetic with anti-Semites. Um, but again, if you jump too quickly to the critique, uh, that's still got to come. But you will miss out on understanding, I think, some of the context. So in the series that uh, Steve Nichols and I edit, Theologians of the Christian Life, Carl Truman did the volume on Luther and uh, doesn't sugarcoat anything that Luther said. But you read the book and you understand more of why Luther actually said those sort of things. Um, And I think that's insightful. So Hmm. to answer your question, yes, I'm sure there's a line. I'm not sure exactly where to draw it. Um, I think we want to kind of steer this middle course between people who say, let's just focus on the good things that these guys taught and not even discuss the bad things or their failings. That's the kind of hagiography view. And the other view is, I don't know what the opposite word from hagiography would mean, condemnatography or something <laughs> like that, where... All you want to do is to to crucify them and to um, kind of have the pinata effect of I'm going to hold this person up just so we can all uh, come take a, a, a whack at them for a while, or just uh, ignore them completely. Yeah, and just you know write them off as if they they had nothing to contribute whatsoever. Um, I just don't think that's a the most mature, careful way to handle things. These aren't people in our church where we've got to think about church discipline issues. They're dead. They can't sin anymore. Mm. They said some really good things. They said some things better than other people have ever said them. They saw some things that no one else has quite seen in the same way. And they messed up pretty badly. Mm. Uh, They sinned against God. They sinned against their neighbor. And we need to learn from them. But I think there's a balanced way to approach that issue. Mm. Yeah, it strikes me that that kind of thinking does require a maturity and a humility recognizing um, not sugarcoating blind spots and areas of sin and, and weakness, but also recognizing that those are that's true of us as well. And if we were, if someone were to study us a hundred years from now and, and see uh, our email accounts, uh, things that we wrote and said, uh, they would probably have many things to, to critique as well there. Right. And not even just what I've written on text or written on emails, but, you know, the secret thoughts in my heart. If 
if that could somehow be projected onto a movie screen and somebody could see everything that I've ever thought or said, I, I think the, um, the those who are always inclined to condemn would pause and say, who am I uh, mm-hmm. to condemn? We're, we're all in the same boat here. We're all sinners and uh, we all need grace. And none of us get through this life and die having achieved perfect sanctification. So how would you respond to the Christian listening maybe right now who, who is maybe a little bit wary of church history? It feels like uh, the emphasis is on studying human traditions and human reflections on uh, God and what God has said. And, and they would instead simply rather spend their limited time studying the Bible. Uh, what would you say to that person? I might ask them if they go to church and the reason I might ask that is because if they do, if they don't, then they're not reading their Bible very carefully, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if they do, then they have already acknowledged in their heart and at some level in their mind that they need community and that they need teaching. So, you know, if somebody's a radical, just me and my Bible, that's all I need. God speaks to me through his word and I don't need anything else. Well, that's maybe a consistent position, although the Bible itself undermines it. But if you read the Bible, you know that God has appointed teachers, and he has designed us to live in community. And if somebody acknowledged that, then I just want to say, why do you only value teachers who uh, happen to be alive? We're recording this in 2019. Hmm. Why only 2019 teachers? Why only community of of those who are still living? Um, We can't commune with the saints as Bible-believing Protestants. We don't believe that we can do that in some sort of uh, unbiblical way. But there is a way in which we can hear from uh, the John Owens of the world and the John Bunyans of the world and the John Newtons of the world. And the John Calvin's of the world, and other guys not named John. <laughs> um, there's a few other ones, I yeah, suppose. There's maybe some. But you know, those guys spoke certain things, and why not hear their teaching? It's been captured for you, and many people have found it to be encouraging and edifying. And chances are that your preacher who's preaching to you, teaching to you from the word, ninety-nine point nine nine percent of the time it's not just been him and the Bible with no church history. He's reading commentaries. He's he's listening to what others have said, what they have seen. I don't have the quote right in front of me, but Spurgeon one time said, why is it that some people uh, pretend as if the Holy Spirit has only spoken through people who are still living? Like, if he uses the Holy Spirit in the lives of your friends and your family and your teachers and your leaders, uh, Maybe he's done that in the past, too, and you can benefit from that. Um, Going back to that Lewis essay, then, Lewis said that there will be cool breeze flowing through your mind when you go back to other centuries, and you see how they thought, how they process things. Um, You discover we're in a very challenging time culturally. Uh, Have there been other challenging times in church history? where uh, things have seemed like they're falling apart. How have uh, how has the church responded poorly? How has it responded well? That's another thing, is it's not just didactic, positive teaching. You can look and see 
ways in which the church has uh, inappropriately responded to the culture. We can learn from their mistakes as well as from the positive things that, that they said. So I would hope that in a sit-down conversation, we could help somebody kind of walk through why that sort of perspective is just not really intellectually coherent. And from a biblical perspective, God tells us in the New Testament through his word that we are to consider our leaders, we're to imitate them, mm. uh, we're to to watch the faith of others. And um, why not do that over 2,000 years versus just you know some limited span like 20 years? Mm. And I'm also struck by it's not just the potential impact that these these um, dead guys and women could have on us, but but also the it, it's a recognition of the the impact they've already had on us. I mean, none of us, as you were saying, very few of us could really reasonably claim to approach the Bible as a blank slate. We're all formed and uh, we're in church traditions that that have a history to them that has kind of helped to shape where we're at today. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, there can be a very naive sense of me and my Bible, and you don't realize uh, this Bible didn't fall out of the sky. Uh, Jesus wasn't speaking English. (laughs) Neither was Paul, neither was Moses. Uh, Somebody had to capture that. Somebody had to decide what the original wording is. Um, Somebody had to translate that into English. So there's all sorts of ways, I mean, everywhere you look in which... Um, theologians and teachers and scholars have been affecting what you think. So even if uh, you could read, sight-read the New Testament in Greek, uh, it's still not like you've escaped the influence of, of theologians upon mm. what you're reading. Mm. Um, it's just, it's an inescapable fact of life. And then once you acknowledge that, then you come around to saying like, okay, am I am I going to be an informed a Christian or an uninformed Christian? Am I going to know how to discern who's a good teacher from the past and who's uh, a mixed teacher, who's a bad teacher, false teacher? Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us today on the show and for just sharing a little bit more about your own love of history and the ways that God has used church history to help form your faith today. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to sit down with you. Uh, You're welcome into my office anytime. That was Justin Taylor on why all Christians should care about church history. For more, be sure to check out the series he edited with Stephen Nichols, Theologians on the Christian Life, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.